Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends. In today's episode, we talk to Jamer Hunt, Vice Provost for Transdisciplinary Initiatives at the New School. We talk to Jamer about his career path blending anthropology with design, the definition and scope of an intervention, the different ways in which designers and social scientists view the practice of ethnography, participation and co-creation, but also the ways in which these disciplines come together and enrich each other. Lastly, we cover how to successfully form and operate multidisciplinary teams, as well as the role of the university space in supporting the practice of anthropology outside of academia. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are back today on The Human Show with Jamer Hunt, Vice Provost for Transdisciplinary Initiatives at the New School. Hi Jamer. Hi, how are you today? Good. We are uh, we are very happy to have you um, on the show. It's actually our first episode um, out of Amsterdam uh, because I um, I moved to Amsterdam and my partner is still um, in New Zealand. So <laughs> we're very excited to welcome you. Well, hello uh, Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jamie, just before we dive into the into the topic, I would like you to tell me and maybe also our listeners a bit about um, your background and an interest in the intersection of design and ethnography. Sure. Well, uh, it started years back. Obviously, as an undergraduate, I had interests in uh, anthropology and ethnomusicology and then decided to pursue a graduate degree in anthropology. But I actually, in in my uh, application to graduate programs, to doctoral programs in anthropology, uh, my initial proposal in those applications, I remember, was that I was interested in producing fake documentaries. And needless to say, um, I was rejected from most of the graduate programs that I applied to in anthropology, because I don't think they were that interested in the idea of a fake documentary. But I was uh, warmly embraced by Rice University um, and their graduate program there. And Rice at the time was really a sort of white hot center within kind of the Anglo world for rethinking anthropology. And it was a program that was taking seriously the critique of anthropology as emerging out of a legacy of colonialism, of uh, constantly producing sort of the the native and the primitive as the other. And yet was also the, the faculty there were very interested in the practice of ethnography, but just trying to reframe it and think through how we might use the practice of, of ethnography, but in ways that didn't necessarily sort of re-instantiate uh, a kind of uh, Westerner at the center and the primitive uh, on the periphery. For me, what that meant was I ended up doing my field work in Paris uh, and primarily focused on a woman who was married to uh, Georges Bataille and to Jacques Lacan, two kind of uh, titanic figures within French intellectual history. And uh, Sylvia Bataille Lacan, who I did my 
uh, doctoral work around was a woman who was sort of absent from the record. Um, and what was interesting to me was that she was, um, that the notion of woman was tied to absence in both the work of Bataille and Lacan. So needless, needless to say, I was not a traditional anthropologist, nor was I a very good anthropologist, and uh, nor did many anthropologists recognize me as one of theirs. And so I found that I was also getting more and more disillusioned as I kind of drifted into the sort of arcane writing of Bataille and Lacan, and, and my writing became, you know, sort of uh, obscure and arcane like theirs. I realized that I was really positioning myself to be someone who was writing for an audience of about 30 people in the world, um, and that the likelihood of having real impact in my work was pretty negligible. Um, and so I felt at that time a real urge to sort of have um, a greater engagement with the world around me, uh, but didn't really know how that would come about. Fortunately for me, in a year when I didn't have teaching and uh, when I was sort of trying to figure out what to do with my career, I was adopted in some ways by the design profession um, and through a very good friend of mine, Tucker Wiemeister. And he was very interested in bringing someone with a kind of anthropological mindset into a design context. And so um, lacking any better opportunities and because there was uh, money to be earned that way, I said yes, uh, not really knowing where that would lead. And so I've um, spent the last 18 years or so really uh, working my way through the design field, uh, first as a, a consultant and then as um, an educator and as a practitioner. And so my work is grounded in a deep way um, within anthropology, but I don't consider myself an anthropologist. I consider myself a designer and, uh, you know, somebody, though, that clearly has a very strong kind of cultural orientation in my work. And so my work currently drifts between practice, teaching, uh, writing and all those different sort of modes of engagement. Um, but it really was an instance of a sort of falling into something that I was not prepared for, which was the design field and discovering something that I truly loved and really felt at home in. Would, you were mentioning earlier that you wouldn't describe yourself as an anthropologist. Or how do others describe you? Um, I think most people are just uh, slightly confused <laughs> as to what to call me. Um, because I have a doctorate in anthropology, a lot of people do call me a, an anthropologist. Um, it's uh, it's quite evident to me that uh, for a number of reasons, that's not what I am. Um, one of the reasons is simple, that it's been so long, I'm not that current in the field. And so from a professional standpoint, I don't keep up with anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, that said, there's definitely a kind of... Uh, you know, sort of DNA within me um, that is observational, analytical, uh, reflective, uh, things that I uh, definitely learned from anthropology. Um, but I was, um, I think, just uh, frustrated by the limits of practice as I understood it at the time, and this was mm -hmm. probably 15 years ago, um, that the practice was primarily oriented around uh, reading and writing. Um, and for me, that was not quite enough. And I wanted yeah. to find a way uh, to engage with larger issues and to have a different kind of impact on the world. So it's for, probably for that reason that I don't call myself an anthropologist. Um, I barely call myself a designer. Um, and, you know, I'm some sort of hybrid in between that, that, you know, I don't have a name for. Um, <laughs> and, th and that's fine with me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, I think I think I would totally identify as well with this definition. Um, one one thing that I wanted to ask you because one of the topics that you will be talking to, and just to introduce it briefly to our listeners, uh, Jamer, you will be speaking at why the world did anthropologies. Correct. 
Um, and you will be speaking to the topic of the intersection between design and ethnography, right? Correct. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to ask, and maybe it's an abrupt start to the topic because it's a question that I personally have been grappling with at this intersection, was how do you work with the concept of an intervention? That's a great question. Um, that was a word. Interestingly, when I um, years ago, when I first uh, moved to the new school in New York, um, I was on a committee that was convened in order to bridge the gap between the designers at Parsons School of Design, which is part of the new school, and the the social scientists that were at the new school for social research. Um, and there was a kind of inkling that there should be a connection between those two things. But there was no real sense of how to sort of build that bridge. And after a lot of time groping in the dark and trying to figure out what we should be doing together, it became very clear that one of the words that and one of the sort of concepts that really animated the conversation on both sides was the notion of intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so in part because uh, the designers were uh, very eager to intervene. It's sort of in the, you know, it's kind of in the um, in the bloodstream of designers to uh, roll up their sleeves and jump in. Doesn't matter if you don't quite know what's going on. In fact, you know, designers in some ways are taught to be able to constantly move from one project to another. Deep knowledge is not uh, necessary for this practice. Uh, and so, you know, designers have uh, rarely met a kind of context or a situation that they haven't felt uh, eager to jump into and intervene into. Um, whereas what was clear from the other side, from the social scientists, designers, sociologists, historians, et cetera, was that uh, intervention was a terrifying concept. Mm -hmm. um, there had been, you know, too many years of uh, sort of fraught uh, moments within uh, these various traditions, particularly the one I know best is anthropology, um, where anthropologists had been, um, whether wittingly or unwittingly, had abetted uh, various kinds of projects, whether they were colonial projects, whether they were um, projects of the state um, around the pacification and subjugation of others. And so, um, by and large, while there was a small corner of the discipline of anthropology called applied anthropology, that was considered the sort of ugly stepchild of uh, the the discipline. It's not what the proper anthropologist did, so to speak. Um, and there was uh, tremendous anxiety around the idea that the uh, that the anthropologist would, in some way, intervene into situations and. That for me was a fascinating notion, in part because I think everybody understood, it was not a unique uh, insight on my part, that um, there was no way not to intervene. Mm -hmm. um, so the presence of the anthropologist in any context is a form of intervention, um, whether she or he um, knows it or not, or whether she or he uh, pretends to avoid intervention or not. And so on the one hand, there was a kind of uh, sort of fetishization of a notion that the anthropologist is kind of on the outside behind a pane of glass, uh, looking, uh, observing, but not touching and leaving no footprints. On the other hand, it was clear that any act of kind of uh, landing in, in another place and uh, introducing oneself, uh, you know, was going to cause ripples and effects within the cultural context. And moreover, that, you know, the idea that there was somehow a pristine, uh, undisturbed uh, place where, where the other existed uh, had been 
challenged and debunked uh, for decades. We we all knew that we were, you know, all universally modern. Um, it was just to quote William Gibson, sort of unequally distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it was um, that term was really fascinating because, on the one hand, it it the term intervention was fascinating because, on the one hand, it really uh, revealed stakes that were so different in the sort of general constitution of these two practices. Designers who were willing to jump in at any moment somehow, sometimes quite um, unaware of the sort of politics of that intervention. And mm. on the other hand, anthropologists who were terrified by the politics and instead seemed to be somewhat sitting on the sidelines, thinking that if they sat on the sidelines, somehow there wouldn't be any politics. Um, and so for us, that was a fascinating uh, sort of revelation that that term had this kind of um, electricity or gravity between these two practices around which we could really have great conversations um, because neither side was as uh, simplistic as I've painted the picture, um, but clearly both had, you know, uh, sort of assumptions about what intervention entailed that were very complex um, and that, Mm. that when aired became a really interesting space for conversation. So, you know, that's been really, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really been um, one of the key concepts that has animated most of the conversations that I've been in around this intersection of design and anthropology. Yeah. Did you find a similar kind of difference um, when imagining what ethnography is and how it works? Well, there was certainly a difference. Um, And in particular, and, you know, I've been around long enough that that, um, you know, the presence of of anthropology within the design profession has evolved and changed and matured and all of that. But certainly back then, when I was first involved in these conversations, uh, by and large, ethnography was understood within the design world as a sort of observational practice that one could do on a relatively uh, brief schedule uh, in order to learn more about users. So one of the things that was critically important in the history of design practice, at least, was that there was this turn towards the user, um, what became described as user-centered or human-centered design. Um, And that was about the time that I sort of stumbled into design. And part of the reason I stumbled in was because there were a lot of designers who were very eager for anthropologists to help them to understand what it meant to understand a user or a a human. Um, And so they were eager to get knowledge. Um, But on the other hand, uh, because they were relatively unfamiliar with the sort of academic practice of anthropology, what, what by and large was passing for normative within the field was, you know, the idea that the anthropologist would observe people brushing their teeth, um, observe people at the, you know, while they're waiting for a subway um, to stop. Uh, And so this was a, um, you know, sort of very uh, simplistic and uh, sort of reduced version of what ethnography was. But in terms of the kind of resources that design consultancies had, they often had almost no budgets. um, And because they were working in a for-profit environment, um, they could not devote weeks and months of time paying people to do that observational research. And so it was generally thought of as something you did in one day or two days or a couple of days or something like that. So it was um, ethnography in that sense was really seen as a highly instrumental uh, sort of um, 
very uh, unreflective process that was simply about observing, hoping to get some sort of insight that might drive uh, the better design of a toothbrush or you know the yeah. better design of the subway system. Um, whereas I think anthropologists, by and large, at least in in the conversations I were was in, uh, were very uh, sort of protective and precious about the notion that ethnography takes 12 months, takes 18 months, that it was slow, uh, that it was deliberate, um, that it was built around participant observation, and that, you know, there was something that was essential to the length and the duration of the engagement that distinguished anthropology from other kinds of practices. And so there was a lot of tension in those sort of early moments around the kinds of um, different perspectives on what uh, the ethnic, what an ethnographic practice could be and how instrumental it could be. Um, and so uh, I think that's, you know, still evolving. Uh, but certainly now what I've seen over the last 20 years is that so many more design consultancies are hiring anthropologists, have more, re have more resources for research, and therefore they're able to um, sort of bring in a, a more expanded notion of ethnography uh, into the design process. It's not so quick and dirty as it was 20 years ago when I started, um, and it's now expanded and, and you know, there's a more, there's a larger critical mass of anthropologists within design consultancies. And so some of those early um, sort of uh, tensions have abated a little bit as anthropologists ha have had more presence and more influence within professional contexts and not just design, but lots of commercial uh, kinds of um, uh, places. Yeah. H have you seen spaces where they kind of enrich and blend and enhance each other? Yeah. Um, in particular, and there's one that's um, not really a design consultancy. It's more of a insights consultancy called Red Associates, um, the Danish firm. Um, and they do uh, an, a remarkable job of bringing in not just anthropologists, but also philosophers um, and other sort of um, humanities PhDs. Uh, and they've built a practice that really is a seamless blend of kind of consulting on the one hand and critical thinking, critical theory, uh, ethnography, engagement on a longer term process. Um, and so they've done a remarkable job at kind of blending these two practices in a way that's relatively organic and also highly original and successful. They've got a, a huge list of Fortune 500 companies that they've worked for. Um, and they're, um, they've built an impressive kind of methodology around the integration of these two practices. Um, and I'm sure there are many others that I could list. Hmm. Yeah. I, w I was thinking when you talk about integration, what type of integration do you mean? Is it integration in methods? Is it integration in purpose and objectives? Because what, you know, one of the things that I struggle with in putting together design and, and, and anthropology is, again, connected to the topic of the intervention and what, what is your role? What are you contributing to, to a system, to a society with this blended practice that you're operating? Um, and to a certain extent, what are the ethics around that and uh, what are the boundaries that you need to be operating within, you know? Yes, it's um, it's certainly um, complicated, and the you know the different modes of integration that I've seen by and large in more corporate environments tends to be one that instrumentalizes 
ethnography as a methodology, um, a way to get better information than one could get through other means, um, and using that information to either produce new insights or produce new products, et cetera. Um, and so, and that's that's not surprising. Um, these are firms that are commercially driven, uh, that have um, you know financial bottom lines, et cetera. So they're uh, at some level always going to be um, leaning towards the usefulness of ethnography. Years ago at the New School, I was involved in some conversations around the development of a either a certificate or a graduate program in design and social research or design and anthropology or ethnography. And um, it was interesting because uh, while there was a collective sense that we should be doing this, especially at a place like the New School, which had committed at the at the university level to bringing together design and social research because it was two of our those were two of our key strengths as an institution. Um, what was interesting to me was while we could bring a room together of 12 people who all agreed that we should bring design and social research or design and ethnography together, um, my hunch was that none of the 12 actually agreed on what that meant um, mm -hmm. and that there were very different sort of flavors of how anthropology and design could come together. Um, and that by and large, it's probably been driven by the more commercial consultancies that are looking to anthropology um, in order to, you know, sort of extract value from the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's been, uh, and the overall numbers who are doing that now are enormous compared to 20 years ago. And this has coincided with the shrinking, at least in the United States, of um, uh, academic positions for PhDs in anthropology. So there's been an enormous uptake in the commercial world for people who, you know, are looking for full-time teaching jobs but can't find them. Um, so there's been that factor, but what I've seen less of and what I'm in some ways more intrigued by uh, is sort of a, a movement in the other direction as well as what can design give to anthropology. Mm. Um, and too often the, the sort of coming together of these two fields has been framed by a more kind of uh, corporate or commercial intent. Um, I'm also really interested in the ways in which uh, the design method and design processes can actually inflect the ethnographic practice, can inflect the field of anthropology, the notion of how we do um, uh, ethnography, the way we write it up, all these sorts of things. Um, that seems to me uh, to not have been tapped quite as much in the various conversations. But what also is quite um, striking is just the number of books now coming out uh, from an academic perspective that are looking at this intersection of design and anthropology. So it's clearly a sort of growth field. I, I'm, I'm thinking about how you started the conversation by definitions around um, an anthropologist at ethnography. And I, I'm thinking like, like what at the end makes an anthropologist? Can you become an anthropologist by practicing intense ethno ethnography? Um, can you be self-taught uh, or no? Or, you know, like what, what exactly is that path of, or how do you become a good ethnographer? Do you need to be an anthropologist to be a good ethnographer? So it's a bit, all of these definitions, it's, um, what do you think? Well, you know, we, it's interesting because um, we have this conversation a lot in design, um, particularly because there has been um, a very uh, strong and pronounced movement within the field towards participatory 
design methods. Um, the idea being that the people that we are engaging with, the people that we are designing for, we should be designing with, that they also have sort of design capacity to contribute to uh, the process of design itself. So there's been a lot of reflection uh, really going back to someone as you know early as Victor Papanek in 1972. Um, so you know 45 years of this now, um, 45 years of reflection on what it means to be a designer and whether everybody is a designer or whether only those who are professionally trained and credentialed are designers um, and what's gained and lost by those different definitions. And I could go into that, but I don't know if it's interesting. But I think from an anthropological perspective, that's been um, a different sort of conversation, a different kind of um, thread. Uh, and in part because I think there still is a strong emphasis on the the kind of academic credentialing of anthropology. Um, there is less of an interest in participation and co-creation uh, within the academic field, though certainly there was a movement going back to when I was in graduate school in the mid-90s to um, beginning to see, you know, one's informants and one's collaborators as, uh, as equals um, and as sharing a voice within the kind of writing up of the uh, ethnography itself and of the monograph. So um, while there's been some interest in sort of opening up the anthropological practice to become sort of uh, more, let's say, egalitarian or democratic, uh, I think it's been a less strong uh, sort of force within the field. In part, there's been a little bit more of a, um, you know, sort of a sense of having to protect the the credentializing of, um, of professionals. But certainly, um, you know, the, the metaphor I always use for designers, and I think it applies just as much to your question about anthropologists, is um, I always use the metaphor of dance, um, which is to say, you know, we all know how to dance, um, but that doesn't make us professional dancers. Um, and so, you know, I think you can find people um, who have acute observational skills, uh, who have, you know, maybe a sensitivity that's far more refined and attuned than a professionally trained anthropologist. Um, and so certainly one could sort of develop those uh, aptitudes and skills and capacities uh, being untrained. I don't think there's something unique to anthropologists that they're, you know, gifted at birth uh, and have something essential in them that, uh, uh, you know, distinguishes them. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's a lot easier to get into the field if you've been professionally credentialed and professionally trained. Um, and that training is is good for something. Um, it's not uh, a waste of time. Uh, you know, sort of the development of certain skill sets and aptitudes, understanding history, et cetera, those are really uh, important. Um, they're not exclusive to trained anthropologists, uh, but they certainly help in the process. So, so like dance, um, you know, we all like to dance, but that doesn't make us professional dancers. Um, and we are all um, observational, acute in that ability to describe what's going on under see, pat I mean, see patterns and understand them and reflect upon those and connect them up to larger patterns. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make us all anthropologists. Can you share some tips of how to properly collaborate between these different disciplines on projects? Like how, how would you go about um, making a successful um, transdisciplinary team well, um, you know, I'm, I'm often, I often find myself um, thinking that the best way to make things work is to find instances where curiosity drives the collaboration. 
Um, so when you can find people who are curious and motivated around a topic, um, regardless of their backgrounds, um, that's usually the best kind of indicator that there is a kind of um, potential for success in that collaboration. Um, and I see that especially in my students uh, who come from a range of different backgrounds that um, their enthusiasm and their kind of openness. And, and I think that's what curiosity um, really signals in some ways is a kind of openness and a recognition of one's um, lack of knowledge uh, within a field. And so it's a sort of lowering of the disciplinary defenses around mastery and knowledge. Um, and I think that openness, that kind of sense of curiosity and inquiry is really um, the way that a project like this can start because it gets people off of a defensive uh, stance um, and it moves them beyond uh, sort of becoming a stand-in or representing their profession as a kind of ambassador or emissary. So um, rather than, or uh, probably even a better word is expert. Um, so the, the sooner we can sort of shed ourselves of the notion of expertise, um, the better chance we have of actually collaborating. Um, and I think that that's, to me, sort of the, and that's the best way to operate. And what that starts to do as well is it starts to kind of reframe what kind of knowledge and expertise is. So for instance, if we're working on a collaborative project, um, let's say in the South Bronx, um, and uh, you know, we start to understand what expertise is in a different kind of way, we begin to realize that the teenager who rides her bike through the South Bronx every day is an expert in a way that we are not and brings a level of knowledge and experience that we will never have to that conversation and is therefore, you know, has an equal role to play and is in, has a sort of equal standing in the development of a project because she brings something that none of us have uh, to the table. We bring things that she doesn't have. Some of those are, you know, book knowledge from anthropology or, you know, practice knowledge from design. Uh, but by and large, I think when we can start to sort of lower those um, thresholds of uh, what constitutes an expert and begin to see that everybody is one, um, it begins to sort of open up the kind of uh, sense of possibility. I think the other, um, to my mind, the other thing that's really central in this whole uh, process and a little bit what I want to be talking about um, uh, in Lisbon uh, is, you know, a sense of giving up control um, and recognizing that uh, one needs to understand and really design the conditions by which collaboration can happen in a way that starts to take out a very goal-directed and driven and instrumental idea of where you're going and begins to um, really embrace a kind of um, lack of certainty about where this can go. And, and again, a sort of openness around what the ends of this process can be um, so that you're not trying to steer something towards a determined uh, outcome, but instead you're engaging in order to surface what the questions are, to surface what the project actually is, what the brief is, as we would say in design, mm -hmm. um, so that you can then collectively work towards how to best resolve that. So um, it's really a an almost a sort of, um, you know, uh, Zen-like practice of having to kind of give up a notion of uh, any kind of particular outcome in order to then really understand mm -hmm. what collectively you're all searching for and then how best to get there. The interesting thing that uh, 
you know, I've observed at least is that while we discuss and talk about the coming together of these practices, um, I've been around long enough to know that um, it's really only been 10 or 15 years that these practices have had a sort of rich and sustained engagement. Um, there's a lot of progress still to be made. Um, 10 or 15 years is not a long time in the sort of history of ideas. And so, um, you know, I think there will be pretty dramatic evolution from both sides. And and one of the things that I noticed for sure, um, in terms of some of my engagement with uh, people on the social science side of all this, um, that I hope will change over time. And, and, you know, and I think organizations like yours, you know, help in all of this is um, there is an inbuilt bias within at least kind of uh, American academic anthropology um, that doing applied anthropology is sort of a second class uh, activity um, and that the really the smart ones all go on to become, you know, tenure track mm-hmm. uh, academics at research one universities. And it's really only sort of the ones who can't keep up uh, that then are sort of um, have no other options but to go into industry. And uh, that's a dynamic that really has to change. Speaking of biases and assumptions, um, they're very different kinds of uh, careers they're different kinds of practices. Um, and uh, they reveal different stakes about how you intervene and act in the world. And I think both are fascinating and complex. Yeah. Um, and so part of what I think will need to change along with designers and other commercial entities having a sort of uh, greater patience with the practice of ethnography, on the other hand, is really the academic anthropologist recognizing that there's something really uh, remarkable and valuable about um, bringing all of that knowledge from a doctoral program into a commercial context where it's challenged in very, very different ways. And those are equally interesting career paths for anthropologists. Yeah. How do you see the role of um, the university in all of this? Yeah, the university's role, I think, is really changing. Um, there has been a, you know, I think the 20th century, not to paint it in two broad strokes, um, the 20th century was really an era of specialization and of deeper and deeper specialization um, to the point of occasional irrelevance um, in terms of the ways in which academics in, engaged uh, and intervened in the world. Um and what I certainly have noticed over you know, my career so far is that there is much more interest now, um, and this may be a little bit more in design institutions um, than in more traditional or especially elite academic institutions, but um, universities by and large, I think, are asking very difficult questions of themselves around uh, what role they're playing um, in society, and can they continue to sort of live uh, on the intellectual margins um, and uh, avoid engaging in the sort of messiness of, of everyday uh, business and politics and uh, you know social negotiation and all those kinds of things. And so what I'm noticing more and more is that universities are trying to find ways to reach out into the world, whether that's uh, to, uh, you know, sort of uh, commercial partners, whether that's to uh, government agencies, whether that's with NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, um, that there is a real hunger within universities, and particularly where I'm at at the New School, there's a real hunger to bring the knowledge and the ideas and the thinking and the contestation um, 
into everyday practices mm -hmm. um, in a way that the impact can be measured beyond uh, citation indices, um, but actually in the ways in which we're influencing policy, practice, the marketplace, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a redefining of academic institutions and of universities away from highly specialized, uh, you know, sort of um, building the, the, the great libraries of the world um, and into the kind of messiness of, of everyday life and everyday practices. And yeah. I think that's a great transformation. And, and it positions both design and anthropology uh, to play really formative roles in this. For, for those of our speakers that want to dive deeper into this intersection of, of design and ethnography and anthropology, can you mention a few good resources that they could um, they, that they could look for? Well, certainly your podcast um, <laughs> is a you. great resource. In fact, I just had a student who was asking me um, about this, you know, sort of intersection of design and anthropology. And, and I was saying, well, here's a great podcast that you should look at. Um, it's got, you know, a really interesting, diverse global um, population. Um, there was, I was part of an anthropology research network that was um, out of uh, Denmark uh, that had um, practitioners and, uh, but primarily scholars um, from, you know, most of uh, Europe and uh, United States primarily. Um, uh, but that was a really wonderful group that was, you know, struggling through these uh was sort of situated both at, I believe, at Aarhus and at uh, the Royal Danish Academy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there, I think, through about three or four events, uh, they published most of the um, proceedings from those events online. You can still find that. And that's a, I find that's a really great resource. Of course, there are multiple books, uh, Design Anthropology. Um, you know, now I can barely keep up with the titles that are coming out right now um, that are blending these two things together. So um, that's obviously a fantastic resource. In the United States, we have Epic, um, mm -hmm. or I guess it's, it's probably more global than the United States. Um, and so that's another area for people who are interested in, um, you know, doing ethnography and, and anthropology within a non-academic context. That's a particularly good resource. Um, and, you know, more and more of the design world um, is when you look at the conferences that are going on in an organization such as Cumulus, for example, um, will have... Uh, conferences that are design oriented and certainly centered around the practice of design, but by and large now they're framed for the most part through sort of um, uh, social problems uh, or social engagement in one form or another. And so you're seeing now a lot of the um, conversation happening there. The social innovation space um, is uh, an important one. Um, the Desis Labs uh, designed for environmental and social sustainability. Um, it was started out of um, the Politecnico de Milano and Ezio Manzini's work, uh, but now is a global network. Um, really interesting, looking at sustainability, social change, and design. Um, so there are a lot of resources now. It's a yeah. great, uh, and obviously IDEO produces their human-centered things, and you know we all probably are familiar with those. But there's a much broader um, spectrum than there was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And there now have been firms that have been operating for 15, 20 years continuously in this space um, in different ways that are sometimes not as much recognized, but um, have been doing really important work. So it's, it's a pretty rich space now. 
So, um, Jamer, I'd love to keep asking you. I have still like four questions on my list, but I'm very mindful of, of the time. And I just wanted to mention to our listeners that uh, you will be speaking at Why the World is Anthropologist in Lisbon in October. So um, I'm sh I think the conference is sold out. Is it? I, I believe it is, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> People should check. and. Yeah, uh, check it out. I, might be a waiting list, but for those that um, already had a ticket. And um, yeah, um, I, I personally, I know I'm looking forward to your talk. Um, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to now going back through your entire archive and listening to them all because uh, it's an amazing uh, archive of work. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we thank you again for being on the podcast and looking forward to seeing you in October. Wonderful. Well, <laughs> great to meet you. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.